Please remain standing and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. God's word says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Please be seated. We're sure Sosthenes recovered from those wounds, but boy... I think he got the short end of the stick in that passage, didn't he? Um, Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word today. Lord, thank you for your word. May your Holy Spirit help us. Guide my speech with many, many thoughts. Uh, We pray that you'll help us to see your text and by your Holy Spirit apply it to our lives and our situation. We pray that we will grow stronger as people and as a church community as a result of actively attending to your word this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence and help. In Jesus' name, amen. The Not Silent Partner. I was a kid, and Iowa didn't understand that phrase, the silent partner. But a couple guys from our church were going to start a restaurant. I believe the the partner who was going to be the managing partner, as they called him, was Walt, Walt McDonald. And he had some restaurant experience, and it was one of these 
you know, mom and pop type restaurants down on Main Street in a little Iowa town, Oskaloosa. No, this was Knoxville, actually, Knoxville, Iowa, where they were. He was going to help the location and hire the chef and get the menu and decorations and all that. But then the one man was the silent partner. So you had a silent partner and you had the managing partner. And I was old enough to understand a little bit, but not quite everything. And I said, if it's such a silent thing, if it's such a big secret, why is he blabbing about it to everybody that he's the silent partner? And what's, what's, what's up with that? And I got an education that day on what is a secret partner, which I was interpreting it as, and what is a silent partner. Uh, here's a silent partner, just in case you're, you're wondering yourself. A silent partner is an individual whose involvement in a partnership is limited to providing capital to the business. A silent partner is seldom involved in the partnership's daily operations and does not generally participate in management meetings. Silent partners are also known as limited partners, since their liability is typically limited to the amount invested in the partnership. Apart from providing capital, An effective silent partner can benefit an enterprise by giving guidance when solicited, providing business contacts to develop the business, and stepping in for mediation when a dispute arises between other partners. Regardless of such requests, it is considered a background role that cedes control to the general partner. This requires the silent partner to have full confidence in the general partner's ability to grow the business. The silent partner also may need to ensure that their management styles or corporate visions are compatible. And I think that a lot of times we look at God as that definition of a silent partner. God invests the capital. By his blood we are saved. But then he turns us loose, minds his own business in heaven. We've got to come up with strategies. We've got to come up with ways to live. Uh, the silent partner did give us a word. We kind of go by that as our little business textbook or our life textbook. And we consider God the silent partner. Sometimes we consider God the secret partner. We hide it under a bushel. We don't even talk about God in our lives. Sometimes we slap a bumper sticker on our car that says, God is my co-pilot. What's wrong with that? Well, it's better than slapping a bumper sticker on that says there's no God or I hate God or something. But the fact of the matter is, God is never your co-pilot. God is the pilot. God is the co-pilot. God is the mechanic. God draws up the flight plan. God even serves the beverages on the plane. It's all God. God is the one that is not silent and not secret. And we've got to see that this morning. There was a famous book by Francis Schaeffer a few decades ago that's still relevant. Uh, Maybe the more relevant one might be one called A Christian Manifesto, which really speaks to our times today. But the one I'm thinking of is one he wrote early on in his, uh, as God started to use him, called He is There and He is Not Silent. And I think that's what we must hear from the word today. He is there. He is not silent. God is active in your life, Christian. God is not your silent partner that gave you a nice little uh, inheritance and a push and now get through and, and I'll see you in heaven. But God is God 
who is active in your life. Three things about this not silent and not secret partner this morning. One, we're going to talk about him in relation to human resources. Then we'll talk about him in relationship to encouragement. And then finally, to divine protection. God can keep track of everything. Uh, There was a song where a guy said, uh, I trust God and I know he's able to keep track of every card that's been laid on the table. And you get these guys that are good card players and they know know, know how many cards are in the deck. They know what they just have an, an, an uncanny ability. Ted was telling me about his grandson's uncanny ability to play in that matching game. He says, you're not going to win against my five-year-old grandson. He just knows where everything is. Uh, God knows where everything is. God is able to keep things straight. That's good. It's not he wouldn't be God. It would defy the definition of God. But here's Paul riding into this big city. This was what they would have called a world-class city in that day. Some historians say about 750,000 people in Corinth. And you think about that uh, without the technology, without the roads, without the transportation. That's a lot of people in, in my book anywhere. This was a big city. Athens had been a famous city. It was on the decline uh, regarding uh, infrastructure and, and things. It was going downhill, but it was still historic, and, and Paul was there in Athens at the, at the scene of intellectual. Uh, Rome was the political city. What was Corinth? Corinth was business. Corinth was capital. They dug a, a little uh, a canal across, sort of like our bigger uh, Panama Canal, but they were able to haul boats through there, and so people could come from all over the world and trade things. It was big business. It was... Uh, uh, something they had what they called the Isthmian Games, which are like the Olympics, uh, uh, but they would have these festivals. People would come in, and that was a big uh, tourist attraction for that day. And sometimes it's hard for me to think of old times having tourist attractions and, and put the family in the station wagon and, and go see the world, but they had the equivalent in that day, and Corinth was a place they came. All types of people in Corinth. Uh, Jews were there doing business. Uh, Jews were not so prevalent in Athens, but they were there in Corinth. Uh, Ethiopians, people from all over the world, as they've looked, were there because that's where the money was to be made and traded and exchanged and goods sold and shipped here and there. Uh, Corinth was a big, big money-type city. I think a little bit of New York City, possibly. Corinth was also a sexually say, active but depraved city. Can you say that these days? Anything went. Big temple, thousands of temple prostitutes that would descend on the city. It's a city where anything goes. In fact, they had a phrase in those days uh, to Corinthianize. This is in the secular literature. This isn't the Bible. This is what we know about Corinth. If you said, uh, well, he really went and Corinthianized, you were talking about some debauchery. That's what it was known for. And Paul was headed in there. Uh, If there was a godly standard, and there is and still is, this is where the city missed the mark. I mean, you even think about Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 
uh, after the church was established, he'd been away for a while. Uh, what was their first big issue? Their first big issue was a, was a sexual issue within their church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to this congregation of believers. He says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And he's talking about even as it crept in and steeped into the church what was going on. Corinth, big business, lots of activity. Find whatever you want. And here's Paul rolling into this town, still by himself. And after his trials and his persecutions in the early part of the journey, after mockery from some and indifference from others when he was in Athens, here he comes. And if he felt intimidated going into that city, even the great Apostle Paul, I have to say I don't blame him. I would have been too. I would have been too. Just me. Gospel. All these people. What am I up against? He said in recalling his entry into Corinth as he was walking in there, 1 Corinthians Two, this letter that he wrote to them as he's rehearsing or rehashing in his mind and with them what happened. He said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Remember, he'd just come from Athens and he had to talk on, on an intellectual type level there. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you, his own admission, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here were people assaulted with too many choices. Maybe in Athens they had had gods to everything and even, an, even uh, an altar to the false god. Here the gods were material. Here the gods were earthy. Here the gods were hedonistic. And there were as many gods in Corinth as there were gods in Athens, all of them false. And he said, I came in just to talk about Jesus and him crucified and let the Spirit do the Spirit's work. Good advice. But we understand that God is not a secret partner. God is not a silent partner with his people who he saved. And God puts his people in place for good purpose. What happened when Paul came into this big old city? It says in verse 2, He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Found a fellow Jew, turned out to be a fellow believer. And there he was. They were artisans. I read about this city in Corinth and what the historians are saying these many years after, as well as they can put together, they had the equivalent of unions, but the unions, they all kind of lived in the same neighborhood. So it would have been the tent maker part and they were all kind of there. They were this part, this part, these artisans. Uh, If that's true, that's 
maybe why Paul went there first. Something about the word tent maker. We use that in our language now. That's Christianese for uh, supporting yourself while you do uh, uh, your, vo- your vocation calling of God. You do a vocation. Uh, they're saying his tent making wasn't necessarily or not wasn't necessarily limited to tents. He was a leather worker. Uh, they did this in England. They talked about the saddle maker. You went to the saddle maker for all your leather goods and your leather needs. And, and so they're saying it might have been more than just tents. Doesn't matter. This just helps us get into the get into the uh, the spirit of the place and puts us there. Um, the guilds living in the city lived in the houses where they did their work. Now listen to this. It's said that the only reason this guy named Aquila, this Jewish man who was there who had lived in Pontus, had come from Italy was because Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. They have a secular historian who talks about this. And the secular guy said they all had to leave because there was fighting. And the word they have is Christus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, is the transliteration of it. Some say, well, it was probably about Christ. We don't know that for sure. But for whatever reason, there was a lot of internal bickering. And what this uh, Claudius had done is just said, get out of Rome. (laughs) Just get out. I'm tired of your bickering, all your fighting. We're going to clean out you Jews. Get out of here. Go, Go take your fight somewhere else. And because Aquila was a Jew in Rome, along with his wife Priscilla, they had to leave too. And what I want us to see is this, as we look at God loving his people, just like he loves you. He does not love Paul or didn't love Paul any more than he loves you. Uh, Jesus' blood was not more saving for Paul than it was for you. You are no less a son or daughter of God than Paul was. And so we get our encouragement, but we see how God operated then. We can say that God being the same, let's look at some things about how God operates with his people. And God had moved all these people around so they could be together, so they could do his work together. And he did it for their good, for his good. I think I said it better in my notes. Get this. I put it in bold. So let's, let's read it. It's going to say the same thing, only better than what I just said, okay? Hopefully. You are exactly where you are because God has placed you there among people he wants there for his great purpose and glory, which also is for your good. There is a level on which you exercised your personal choice, but another level that's beyond our pay grade on which sovereign God, active God, not silent God, not secret God, moved you. You're where you are because God wanted you there for his good purpose, which is good for you and good for God. And when you realize this, it will be great comfort. We all look back on things in our life. I wish I could do that over again. Boy, I wish I had those years again. God, give me, give me a year with my kids when they were little. God, give me a year early on in the marriage. God, give me a year in ministry back where I can go back to that same place. God, give me this. Let me make that car decision or that house decision or that life decision. Let me have another shot at it, God, please. We all have things like that. They may not be the same things, and maybe we made opposite decisions, and if we all did go go back, we'd make opposite ones from each other, and then we'd say, let me go back, God, and try again. All I'm saying is this place where we are in our lives is also 
something ordained by God. We are where we are because God wants us where we are for his purpose. This is your life. This is your marital situation. If you're married, this is your spouse. If you were married, this was your spouse. These are your kids. This is your finances. These are your neighbors. This is your skill set. This is or was your job. This is your church. This is where you are. And your destination is heaven. And where you were was no surprise to God. And where you're going is ordained by God. And so we say, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Because God is not a silent partner or a secret partner. Not up there going, oh, I wish I could do oh, I wish I could. Uh, we had this false teaching where I was growing up. And it was, it, like, it's so complicated. It's too complicated. God has a perfect will, and God has a permissive will. And somebody screws up in their life. They go, oh, well, I'm not in God's perfect will anymore, but I'm in his permissive will. Well, what does that make God? And what does that make you? Um, it's easier and better for us to say, I don't understand everything about everything. God is God, and God's sovereignty is a mystery. But God is God, and he's my God. He saved me. He's good, and I trust all of that. And I don't know. You could even make the case and say every day I'm in his perfect will because I'm here and alive, and God is not abdicated, and God is not panicking and pulling out his hair and trying to shift his angel troops to this place or that place. Uh, We are in the hands of a good God, and that God is not a silent partner, and that God is not a secret partner. Got to understand that. We're fine, and you're fine. Even if hell is all around you, and even in your soul, you're tormented and hurting, you've got God, and you're walking through life with God, who's not silent, who's not secret. When we realize this, it'll be great comfort. God's been part of it all along, and we'll be part of the rest of the way. Paul goes into this intimidating city, and God already planned, and there's Aquila and Priscilla right there for him. What about the not-secret, not-silent God in regards to encouragement? Paul needed more. He's the great Paul. By God's grace, he wrote half the books in the Bible. Sometimes we even call him Saint Paul. He's Saint Paul. And he was scared, and he was discouraged, and his loving God who loves you as much as him knew that and came and helped him and spoke to him. Let's consider the encouragement of our not-silent, not-secret partner. Acts 18, 5 through 11. So Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. And when that happened, Paul didn't need to be the tent maker, leather worker anymore uh, to pay for his meal. They brought a gift with them. It talks about that. And he was devoted full-time to ministry then. And he branched out from just the synagogue on the Sabbath to... Uh, the culture at large, because that's what God had called him to do. He was occupied with the word. 
He testified to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed and reviled him. And he shook out his garments. Remember Jesus saying, shake off the dust of your sandals if they don't hear you. That was a common demonstrative thing. We have other things. We have the New Jersey state bird, for instance, that uh, I see when I'm driving down the roads if I switch lanes without a blinker and all that. We have demonstrations that we give uh, with our bodies. Uh, Paul gave a demonstration with his clothes. He shook out his clothes, saying, your blood's on your hands. I'm going to the Gentiles. It's up to you. He left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. House happened to be next door to the synagogue. Lo and behold, he says, I'm going to the Jews. And then Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So he did this, and Jews and Gentiles both came to the Lord. There was a a movement of God's spirit in people's lives. And even though he says, I'm done with you, um, uh, as far as a, a... I'm I'm wasting my time talking to you. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine or however he would have phrased it as he shook his garments off. Uh, Holy Spirit's not done until the Holy Spirit's done. The Holy Spirit's even saving Crispus from the synagogue. Maybe even because of Paul's drastic actions. We don't know what God used inside of Crispus's life, but God saved him. People are coming to the Lord. And then comes the opposition. It's the same pattern. And Paul's like, man, it's the same thing every time. Synagogue first, opposition, people get saved, and it always ends. He goes, I've seen this movie before. It always ends up with me getting beat up and left for dead. It ends up with me getting beat up or put in jail. It gets uh, ended up with me getting beat up and run out of town. And Paul's like, oh, man, here we go again. And it's kind of uh, almost funny uh, uh, not not to Paul at the time, because he was really afraid, but he saw it coming, because it happened over and over again. What do they say? Those who uh, don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Watch and see, young Padawan. It's happening now. It repeats, and Paul saw this repeating, and it wasn't going to look good for him in the end. It's like an actor in an action movie doing his own stunts. And he says, how many more times? I'm getting older. I can't get thrown off this horse one more time. No, it's good for pictures, but I've got to get a, somebody else to take my stunts for me. And you can't blame Paul for his sense of dread. I would have the same sense of dread. And God was aware of that. And God, the not secret, not silent partner, came to Paul, not in a dream, but in a vision. It wasn't some dream that then Paul could go to have somebody interpret my dream and throw this spin on it. God spoke to Paul. Had, had God spoken to Paul before? Yes, as a non-believer on the road where he said, why are you persecuting me? Uh, God spoke to Paul, and he spoke to him this time, and he said a couple of things to him. Uh, this is in verses uh, 9 and 10. First thing he said, Do not be afraid. Implication, Paul was afraid. Implication for us. When we're afraid of what will happen to us because of our faith, we're in good company. You're a little scared of what might happen to you because you're a Christian? If you live as a Christian in the wrong place? Well, don't beat yourself up over that. Just say, so was Paul. Second thing he said, 
Go on speaking and do not be silent. We used to sing a song in Sunday school. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine. It's a great commission that we're all called to fulfill. I think we do it better as a group, and I think we do it biblically as a group with the church loving and sharing the gospel and using our collective gifts and abilities. Some of us are our meter greeters, some of us are better at this, some are better at that, some keep things going right, and, and we encourage, and, and uh, I, I love uh, group evangelism, so to speak. But we're all supposed to be part of the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples as you're going. So keep going. Later on, Paul would write to these Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God said, keep on speaking. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking, for I am with you. Paul was not on his own, and you are never on your own if you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit indwells you. That's biblical teaching. You have communion, direct communion with God through the Spirit that indwells you, and you are never alone even when you're body and you're humanly all by yourself. He said, no one will attack you to harm you. (laughs) Now, this is what Paul needed to hear. If I was Paul, I was going to say, I don't know about that. (laughs) They did it last time. They did it the time before. They did it the time before. And they would do it again. Paul's going to die for his faith. But in this case, he needed the reassurance, and God had his plan for him for this time. No one will attack you and harm you here in Corinth. At other times, God's message to him was, I'm with you in prison. Later on, as he faced his death, Paul would write to the Philippians, for me, to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. At this time, there was a fear, and God loved him enough to take that fear away and comfort him. He said, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul's going, what? Many in this city who are your people? This city that's so... Uh, hell-bent on on making a quick dollar and and in building wealth and acquiring wealth, this city that is so so far out of it regarding what the Bible says and what God says about sex and sexuality, you have many that are your people? What? He says, yes. And we think about Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah was a Similar person to Paul. He was out there on the front lines. He was chased down. He was hounded. Uh, At times, he felt very alone. He was all by himself under a tree, and he said, God, just kill me. Kill me now. And God just uh, woke him up. The angel of the Lord made some food for him and sent him away to a cave, remember? And, And God's talking to him, and there's a personal conversation, and God's still small voice speaks to him. And in 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 18, Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And he says, I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then God responds, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
you might think because in your family situation or your work situation, you might think I'm all alone except for God with me, but sometimes as, as, uh, as God found out about Adam in the garden, God walked with Adam every day, and he said it's still not good for the man to be alone. You're like, wait, he wasn't alone. He was with God every day. But God said there was a, a, a need. There was a human need, and, 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 and Eve was made for Adam as Adam had been made even before Eve for Eve. They were made for each other, and God had them together. And God is saying to Paul here, as he said to Elijah, you're not the only Christian. And there are people out there. It may not seem like it when you're watching the news or when you're sitting in your classroom and they're mocking everything good and true. They're calling good evil and evil good. Or you have to go to that training and, and, and it's work training. It has nothing at all to do with your business. It has everything to do with some weird version of how people want to make you think and, and run. You're not alone. There are other Christians too. Thank God. Somebody called, they talked about the church and they weren't quite Presbyterian or Reformed, but they were open to our church and they're saying, man, we moved up here to, to New England and it's, a, it's kind of a ghost town for Christians. I said, but thank God we're not the only game in town. There are Christians and there are Christians and there are Christians. And they may... Uh, see things on, on side issues. We may have intramural debates on, on baptism and things like that, but they are Christians, and praise God, you're not alone. You're not alone in the workplace. Didn't get permission, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think I have permission. I'm looking at Sandy at a meeting when things were rough. And somebody spoke almost in code and says, we just have to, I forget how, how that other teacher said it, but something the way she said it. The Holy Spirit encouraged Sandy at that meeting to say, Christian and Christian, I'm not the only one. And the reminder at that point, there are more Christians than we think sometimes when we think we're all alone. You're not alone. And the rest of the story is he stayed there for a year and six months. So we see God is not secret God is not silent. He puts his people together like he did with Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, who then later on trained Apollos, and and, and the church grew. God gives words of encouragement, and he knows what you need, and he will send your encouragement to you as you read his word, as you talk to fellow Christians, as you pray, as you open. The Lord Lord speaks. He's He's not an abstract thing. God's personal. He saved you for a personal relationship with him. All this imagery of families and friends and I call you brothers and those kinds of language throughout scripture. God's personal. Jesus is your friend. God is your friend and your savior and the sovereign Lord of lords and the creator. But there's a personal relationship and you can have communion with him. And then we see the divine protection. Acts 18, 12 through 17. Gallio was the proconsul. 
Jews made the united attack on Paul. And again, it's not every Jewish person because what was Paul's race? He was Jewish. So it's not, let's whack the Jews. It's not saying that. When it talks about the Jews this way, it's talking about the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders. So the religious ones who've been looking for the Messiah, Paul's cutting in a lot by God's grace, and a lot of them are coming to the Lord. They're saying, yeah, everything he told us is true in the Old Testament. Now here's Christ, the Messiah. And so there was opposition to Paul uh, because of that. They came, and they went to this leader, not a believer. They said, hey, he's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Wasn't talking about their law, talking about Roman law. Uh, uh, Christians in the early days were called atheists. You know why they were called atheists? They only believed in one God instead of the multiplicity of gods that were out there. And they were saying, he's teaching, he's starting a new religion. Uh, Rome at this time was kind of cut a deal with the Jewish people and said, you guys, you know, you don't bother us, keep submitting to us, and we'll let you have your own little thing. We'll look the other way. But they were saying to Gallio, he's starting a new religion, and it's not the religion of the culture. He's going against culture. Ban him from Twitter. Get him off Google. Demonetize him. Wipe him out. He's not with culture. Gallio, in this case... Eventually, it would be a, a Roman, uh, some, somebody from the Roman government that would sentence Paul to death and, and somebody filling out that government that would, that would chop his head off. But at this point in time, God said, protection, and I'm going to use this non-believing governor to let the gospel flourish in freedom here. Why did God do that? Well, ask him someday. We just know that he did it for his good purpose, and it was a good thing. My great uncle, the question is, does God then, can we say that God even controls the non-believers' actions? I'd say, yeah. My great uncle used to turn on the TV, he'd say, well, it's 5 o'clock news time, let's turn on the news, let's see what the devil's been up to today, he would say. See what the devil's been up to. Turn on the news and just watch it all. See see how the devil's been at work in his world. But for the Christian, and that's a true statement, but for the Christian, what must underline that thought is that the devil does nothing. God does not permit, allow, and even ordain without getting his hands dirty. So we understand that the devil's at work, but God is the boss, and God's in charge of things, and God does use non-believers uh, even who remain non-believers, to do his work to accomplish his great plan and to protect his people. And in this case, that's what happened. Think of this. In the last case that we, we remember, where I've referenced, where Paul was beaten and put in prison in the jail, the, the, the Philippian jailer, was God at work there? As much as in Gallia? yes. Think if Paul hadn't taken that beating. Think if he and Silas hadn't been there in the stocks singing at midnight. Think if when the prison doors open, uh, for whatever spiritual means God hadn't helped them to keep those people in. Think of that, that jailer who said, in awe, what must I do to be saved? If you could take a trip to hell and you could only stand a millisecond of it, but let's say you had to spend 10 seconds there and saw what hell is like, and then you went to heaven, 
You could get 10 minutes there and you could interview the, the, the jailer from Philippi and his family and see them praising God and realize that God used all those beatings and imprisonments uh, as part of his plan as he delivered those dear souls that are our brothers and sisters from hell. You'd say, I'll take that beating every day as long as I can if that could pay for these people to go to heaven. Following that? God's in charge of the bad, the imprisonments and the beatings for his good glory. In this case, he was in charge of Gallio, and he said, in this case, Gallio is not going to do this to you, Paul. You're going to thrive. And it says in the text, the church grew. Now, on our level, we don't understand how God works or what he's doing. We know God uses prayer as as a means, and so we pray. And I would say, pray for your government. Pray for a Gallio situation. Pray that the tide could turn. But understand, if it does not turn, and what comes is what has come to all these places, that's also a beautiful, wonderful, loving plan from God. I was telling Anna, I grew up, in our homes we grew up, we always prayed for people under communism. Pray for the persecuted church in Russia. Pray for the persecuted church in China. Pray. They don't have. They're locked up. They're beaten for their faith. I saw pictures as a kid from Voice of the Martyrs with a man whose tongue had been cut out of him because he wouldn't stop singing praises to God and witnessing to the guards. And I read uh, Tortured for Christ and all those things by Richard Wormbrand. And I'm glad my parents had us do that. But then I heard a woman speak who'd been imprisoned behind the Iron Curtain for her faith. And uh, she had escaped to America from that socialistic, communistic government that would broke no rivals to their power and so hated God and did not want God to be their leader and so hated God's Christians. And she came and she spoke to a big room full of us and she said I know some of you were praying for us in our persecution and imprisonment she said but we prayed just as hard for you in the west because we felt like our faith was real because it was tested and you guys are so fat and happy you can go to church or not go to church you can read your bible or not go to read your bible you can walk to the store and buy whatever you want there's no call on you as a Christian uh, no persecution, no nothing. And she said, we prayed for you for your faith to be real and to grow in spite of of what you had against you in your freedom. What we're saying here is with a pattern in Acts is sometimes government was good to Christians, sometimes government was bad to Christians. Always God was in charge of all of that and always it's good. And so we take what's coming. But if I'm praying, I'm praying for the, 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 the Gallio uh, situation because I'm a wimp or something. But God will do what God will do, and it is a good thing. God is not a silent partner in our lives as Christians. God is not a secret partner in our lives as Christians. He's there, easily seen, easily found. We're not seeing God Could it be because we're not looking? I'm not going to say that about you, but I'll say it about me. 
When I'm looking for God, I find him. He reveals himself to me. Let's wrap this up. A couple of things that I've already said. And so the wrap up, I just, what do I have? Six little things, quick things. One, maybe I'll read them, that'll go quicker. You are not alone. You have communion with God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is walking with you in these intimidating, possibly scary times. You're not alone. No secret partner, no silent partner. With you. Second, therefore, do not capitulate to the culture. Don't Corinthianize. Just because everybody else is Corinthianizing. You don't have to do it. God's with you. Don't be intimidated by this culture. Easy to get intimidated when you start driving, okay? That's what the driver's ed instructor told me. He said, these kids are good drivers. He says, but people come up behind them because they're going too slow. They, they get on them and all that stuff. And he said, just teaching them, who cares about those people? I'm driving. Easy for us to be intimidated by our culture that is wicked and on its way to hell. Easy for us to say, I'll go along with that temporarily because that's easier than resisting. Don't. Don't Corinthianize. Third, you are not alone regarding people either. God has more than just you. If you were only one, if you were the only Christian, this word, what I'm going to say would still be true. If you were the only one, it's still true that you plus God equals a majority. That's still the truth. But that's not even the truth. There's Christians everywhere. And some of these people that God said he had in his city, I think were people that weren't even saved yet. He's still saving people. He's still drawing people. So don't be intimidated and don't feel all alone. You have God and other Christians are there. Nothing else. You have this church. And I need you to stand with me and and I'll stand with you. We stand together as brothers and sisters, as a family in Christ. Four, not the silent partner putting up the stake, in this case the blood of Christ, and then just leaving you on your own to flail. One night starting this church, and it was not fun. It's the first 10 years, <laughs> you know. Thank God we bought our house right before the housing market collapsed, and we were so underwater we could not walk. We had to stay. We had to stay. That was the version of the, that explorer who burned the ships so this Men couldn't have an insurrection to go back. The ships were burned. Our burnt ship was the housing market crashed. And I'm down in my downstairs, and I'm just pacing the floor. I'm walking from the kitchen all the way to the living room, back and forth, and back and forth. And I thought of that old country song my dad used to listen to. I'm walking the floor over you. I can't sleep a wink. It's true. Hoping and praying that my heart breaks right in two. I'm walking the floor over you. And I said, I'm not going to walk the floor over Christ the shepherd or anybody anymore. God, I'm turning it over to you. If you want to walk the floor in heaven, you, you pace the floor. i got to go to bed. I'm human. And we cannot worry. We don't have to. God walks the floor. God's not just a silent partner saying, you better, you better succeed or I'm going to shake every bit of my investment out of you. I'll take it out of your height. That's not God. He's not silent. He's not secret. Five. God who walks with you tailors his communication with you to meet you where you are at the time. 
Paul needed the comfort, and God gave it to him. God must love his people. God must love you. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you, says the scripture. Peter, I think, wrote that one. Holy Spirit gave it to him, though. Finally, we want to make sure we don't miss this at all. The message that Paul preached, that he continued to preach, that he put his life on the line to preach, that message is the message we must declare to ourselves and to others. It's summed up everywhere in Scripture, but I, I found the best, the best place, I think, for the sermon this morning. That's in the second letter that we have to the Corinthians. It's ver- chapter 5. It's verses 14 through 21. This is the gospel that Paul preached. This was the basis and the foundation for a relationship with God that gave him the encouragement. It's the basis for us that gives us our encouragement. I'll read it, then we're done with the sermon. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, Christ the shepherd, Christians, are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's the kicker. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our message. There is hope, and God is not secret, and God is not silent. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this incident. It happened in the life of Paul in Corinth. We thank you for your work. We thank you that uh, all of it's good, that all things will work together for good, and we thank you for Jesus, and that we are reconciled to you through Jesus dying on the cross, paying the punishment, bearing the wrath of the Father for our sins. We thank you for salvation, and we do pray that you would let us be part of your wonderful uh, outworking of, of your plan in seeing people come to know you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.